0: Paul House, This is Caroline with Daily Review.
1: This
2: is Paul with Daily Review.
1: And this is Mike from Pop Culture Review. This is the Outsider Podcast. Tonight we're talking about Episode 9 of Season 1, Tigers and Bears. This is the penultimate episode of The Outsider. It was teleplay by Dennis Lehane, coming back for his second episode this season. He also did In the Pines, In the Pines. It was directed by Charlotte Brandstrom, and this is her first episode of the season. Hey guys, how you doing?
0: Good.
2: Good, good. What do you all
0: think about this title?
2: Well, there's a Wizard of Oz reference, more literally, it's talking about the saber-toothed tiger and the bear cave designations given to those caves that keep coming up in the story.
0: I could definitely see a Holly as Dorothy and having all these men with her as like her little tribe. What, what we figured out, right, in our countdown is that we thought we were going to lose several of them, which leaves probably three, probably a scarecrow, a tin man, and a lion to, go, to end up going with on mm. the journey. So who's who? Who do you guys think represents? I think Yoon is a total Tin Man. Okay. Andy could be like a scarecrow. No brain. I'm going yeah, with Ralph okay. as yeah. a Ralph as a lion. He's the most fearful. You Guys are so quiet. What the hell? <laughs> oh, I'm
1: thinking about that because I would. I think <laughs> I, I would have. I mean, I guess that really works. I don't think either of them have no heart. It's just which one. I think you're right. I think Ralph is probably the better cowardly lion than Yoon is. I, I definitely agree. Andy is the brainless scarecrow.
0: That counts out Alec and probably Seal. And yeah, I think that those are gonna be the ones that are gonna be counted out right right quick.
1: Seal is the piece of shit that the lion shits out sometime during the movie. Be- <laughs> that guy sucks. Oh Fuck my ew. god.
2: What, oh my Wizard god. of Oz did you see where the they
1: were <laughs> shitting? It was a, it was it was a very rugged street production of Wizard of Oz from my youth. <laughs> Really kept it real. The mean streets of Queens, baby.
0: This little tiny section of this episode and just sort of get it out of the way because it was a little confusing. A little bit like you had to piece little nuggets together. Let's talk about D.A. and this apparent reveal of a dead body, a little boy. What do we think is going on here?
1: This whole thing had me baffled. I have notes all over my margin. Did we miss the report or some kind of Easter egg or some kind of passing comment that another kid had been taken? Because you would think this would be big news for this group in particular if a a child had gone missing who is done the same way as Frankie Peterson and all the other kids that we've heard about. But I thought it was also interesting, though, just to kind of see how far the hubris has fallen away from the D.A., this was a guy tonight who looked like a fraction of the man, barrel chested, loud mouth. We're going to, you know, hang Terry Maitland man that he used to be. Do
2: you remember in the book, there's a certain point where the DA is actually resigned to the idea that he's not getting reelected. So he might as well help this crew. I think it's after everything kind of goes down But this this is a totally new unbooked twist, this idea of a second kid in his county.
1: Once it's obvious that Terry could not have done this, and it really comes after the school trip alibi, you know, with the convention conference, the DA, he was really crestfallen. But his big revelation was, I'm not going to run for DA again. Not that he was going to resign or apologize publicly in any way. This seems to be a more fleshed out kind of portrayal of that with the intimation that he tried to go see Glory to say whatever he was going to say. And I was curious what you guys thought what he was going to say to Glory had she given him the time of day.
0: My best guess is that he was going to say there's a new case that appears to have similar circumstances. This really feels like Terry was wrongly accused. Glory said he seemed like sad enough when he was wanting to talk to her that she regretted not allowing him to say what he wanted to say because it seemed like he was remorseful in some way.
1: Hmm. He seemed somewhere between about to puke and remorseful.
0: I mean, I'm not saying what I saw. I'm saying that's how I heard Glory explain it to Jeannie, that like when he approached her in the courthouse, which we didn't see, that she was describing his demeanor to be like very small and like meek.
1: I No, I agree with that. But based on what we saw of him, I think Glory's take was it seems like it was kind of dead on but the larger point is i'm just confused about how this was introduced you know i thought maybe originally they were talking about the guy that uh, that jack shot to steal his truck but that none of that and that's the only reason i could think that they were going to put it in the previously on
2: but I was, that was a, like an older guy. It basically, asks us: Is do we have the right thing? You know, creature. I think the answer is yes. Is there a second creature? Is there something that we missed? Having watched Westworld all the way through, we know that HBO is—they love to make you have to watch the whole thing over again to pick up on those things that you missed the first time you went through. I don't think this is going to be that kind of show. But now this this twist has me wondering.
0: Question mark? Though I agree with you on the idea that it could be a second entity of some sort whether it's human or whether you know this thing is capable of splitting I don't know we know that it wasn't like ready to move on in terms of having enough food to eat also we kind of all questioned like how do you keep Glory as a part of this story if there's going to be a season two but if you can stir the pot like this where now the DA is back in it Glory's back in it I guess you could see how they're setting us up for a season two
1: all of her scenes for the last couple episodes that we've seen her have been about the lawsuit. That definitely seems to be where they're heading in the season two. You know, she couldn't talk to the DA. Not that I got the impression she really wanted to talk to him, but she, she didn't think it was a good idea because of the lawsuit. What did you guys think of her conversation with Jeannie? It struck me as very insulting, but I don't know why, because her words were all positive words.
2: Is this the way women talk to each other where they're like, I want to settle the piece, but I still think you're full of crap. Ta-ta. Is, is that normal woman talk?
0: I wouldn't say that it's that it's necessarily normal woman talk. I'm not willing to take that on my shoulders. But I am willing to say that we all say things a lot that is really like a double-edged sword kind of comment. Like you might, if someone's saying something shitty to you, you might be like, I'm sorry you're having a bad day well, (laughs) that person may not be having a bad day. They really may be like purposely being rude to you or, but you're sort of like trying to act as if, you know, you're giving them some sort of out, which is sort of what Glory did where she's like, you know, I think you're a good person. I, and I'm here to say, I believe in the sincerity of your beliefs. That's such an empty statement in actual meat, but at the same time, it's really good. You can't really be mad at me for saying that, right? I mean, like, it's not exactly antagonizing, but it's also a very empty statement
1: that's what rubbed me the wrong way the words were the right words but it was delivered in such a way the words themselves were it was it was like what you would say to a child who has said the boogeyman has tried to get me from under the bed pat them on the head and say oh I love your act of imagination. I think that's great.
0: It is actually the way adults do talk to each other. Hear this statement. I'm sorry you got your feelings hurt.
1: If you were offended by what I said, I'm sorry.
0: But in that case, it puts like the onus on the other person. Like, I'm sorry you got your feelings hurt. Like, I didn't do anything. And in this to just sort of be like, I believe in the sincerity of your beliefs. It's like, I'm not buying in and I'm in no way like letting you off the hook. It's just like... I'm trying to act like, but I don't want to be actively fighting with you. So this seems sort of like an empty sorry, if you will. I
1: think I was a little put off how she started that the I don't want to destroy the goodwill that we have gained. It, the whole thing sounded like she was at like the Yalta conference trying to like <laughs> talk down the Russians before, you know, they divvied up Germany or something like that. We are enemies, but I respect the sincerity of your... It, the whole thing just really run me the wrong way, but no more so than Jeannie not being like, bitch, you don't even know what you're talking about. There's like eight police officers down in town. Tennessee.
0: I thought that what she said was actually very real in a way that was very, she didn't blow at her. But so the line that stuck out to me is she was like, you know, they're putting themselves in harm's way, but I don't have the strength to deal with your reaction to like explain the backstory. I'm not trying to persuade you to believe what they're doing is right or wrong. But the reality is I'm so nervous about my husband being gone and what they're doing that I just can't even start this conversation with you. I
2: liked it. I thought it was like a good show of strength because Glory came around around there, came there with kind of an agenda, then she thought that she was going to say her thing and that was going to be that. It was. I think it was like one-directional traffic was all she was counting on for Jeannie to say, "I can't deal with your reaction." I think that's a line I might try to use in the in the future. I enjoyed it so much.
0: I thought that that might go in your bag of comments. I felt that that might come back at some point.
2: I definitely appreciated Jeannie's show of restraint,
1: and in the adult world, that is the right way to behave. You know, she knows what she believes. She's not going to compromise, you know, or say otherwise to to placate Glory. I still believe what I jumped on board with. What what Holly said. I just want someone to get their fucking cubuppance. I want to see Jeannie snap a little bit. She put up with her Downton Thomas husband. She's put up with Glory, who only seems to come over to push her agenda, like Paul said. I want to see a little less life coach from her and a little more get out of my house before I shank you, my husband is putting himself in harm's way to try and exonerate your dead husband, among other things.
0: Interesting. Just because it makes good TV or because you want that for the character? I
1: want that for the character. I think this was better TV way because I think it played against type. I think what I'm asking for is what lesser TV shows would have done. Have her go into a tizzy and showing evidence and stuff like the pictures and all that. But I feel like Jeannie's just got to be so wound, wound so tight. She had that call with Ralph where he didn't really answer anything other than just make her feel more nervous. She, she was feeling trepidation already. And then you got this fucking high horse coming in here going. Tap, 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 tap. <laughs> I'm going to cut off my horse here and placate you a little bit about the sincerity of your beliefs. Fuck you, Glory fuck you, and the, the righteous horse you rode in on.
0: Lori has got to be feeling super alone, and that I think that's maybe the part that maybe you were reacting to, Mike. This was so self-serving in terms of, of she realizes that she doesn't really have anyone on her side. She's suing everyone in the town, basically. You know, she no longer has people at the school or at her job or anything, and there was really nothing that she could say here that didn't feel like she was just trying to make sure that she could have tea with someone at some point in time because she was basically burning bridges everywhere else, but Right. I
1: mean, if not for Jeannie's maturity, she would have burned this one too. Because if I'm sitting in Jeannie's, I take that as nothing more than dripping condescension. If
0: someone said that statement, I believe in the sincerity of your beliefs, I think I would stare at them and be like, why don't you just say whatever it is you want to say? Because that's not it. Why don't you just get it off your chest already?
1: Glory is her own worst enemy and has been for quite a while. She burned through her sympathy well faster than maybe any television character in the history of television.
0: <laughs> for as long as they seem to have lived in this town, and, and that's important because that was how they established Terry, was they had lived in this town, everyone knew them as a family and all this stuff, that she doesn't have anyone else coming forward, that she's going to the lead officer's wife for sympathy in any way. It seems like there should be someone else. I mean, I understand that her employers seem to be, you know, genuinely sympathetic and realistic, like, you know, you know you're right I don't think you are going to be able to come back to work but she has no friends. She's got kids and stuff. Like, there's there's absolutely no one who would talk to her.
2: In the book, she is deserted by all of her friends. And they do not come back until the very public exoneration by the DA's
1: department. But she's also a thousand times more sympathetic in the book than she is being portrayed here. Maybe because it's a close-ended story, and, you know, so they wanted to make her sympathetic all the way through. How she's behaving in this show is not how she is portrayed in the book at all.
2: Good, solid point.
0: Do you guys think it works to have changed her character like this or does not? I mean, I
1: think it emphasizes what a good man Terry was. And I think you hinted at it in your last statement, Caroline. This was Terry's town. This is the town the Maitlands founded. What we're seeing here is that Glory, and any standing she had in the town, was through her marriage to this... I guess Jesus like selfless figure that that she has always said that he is. I mean, she's never been shy to say what a good father what he was, what a good man he was. She she's not helping herself not be a pariah in the town in the wake of his accusation and then death.
2: I think I think what Mike was saying about how her behavior produces better long-lasting tv type stuff like if you are looking for a second season which you know I, I don't know that this show is gonna really have a great meaningful second season that's the kind of like the the conversion of the milk toast glory equivalent from the book she wasn't called glory in the book into this sterner much less likable person it makes it so that she can kind of last longer. That now, sense? what makes
0: you feel like that the story doesn't have a second season in it in terms of the quality of the actors or the dialogue you know, any part of the actual making of a show. I know you guys have read the book and so you feel like you know what an ending should look like, but what makes you feel like this isn't a quality enough concept and cast and everything to go to season two?
1: I think how they're portraying her character is all for a season two. I think if this was just going to be a actual limited, like a sharp objects, like limited one season, why not make her sympathetic? Make her the person that you should feel for constantly but if they're gonna think season two and you want her and this actress and this character to stay in the story then you can't have her be this all sympathetic character you know you already have that with Jeannie. you already have that with the memory of terry and how unjustly he was served in the end so you need her to be abrasive That's what causes the conflict, and the conflict is what makes drama, and the drama is what allows you to want to see her in season two.
2: Yeah, I don't disagree with any of that.
0: Okay, but Paul, you you were like, I don't know how this show could have a second season.
2: It's because the book has spoiled me into thinking that there's only one ending in this. Obviously, they could very much veer away from that ending. They would have to in order to have a second season. That's probably where the D.A. Hayes thread makes the most sense. Let's
1: say they track El Cuco down and put him down next week. We haven't seen the episode, obviously, yet, but let's say that happens. It seems to me we may be looking at a Yoda dying declaration of, there's another, you know, (laughs) as he takes his final breath or whatever. Right. And it looks like, you know, Grandpa Mike up in Cherokee City. Though Grandpa Mike says he wasn't scratched.
0: We have our whole crew hanging out at the Bolton House. They all determined that the best thing to do is to assume... That whatever Claude that they have in the house, real Claude, if he sees or hears anything, then Goo Claude is going to be able to absorb this. Did you guys appreciate that as like, yeah, that makes sense. Or you're like, boy, this is bullshit.
1: Holly was on the right track to assume the worst, you know, based on everything that she seems to know or have amassed from the, you know, researching he, doing a little research into Terry and now living through the Claude scenario. It seemed to be maybe a little bit of a leap, but it seemed to be a smart, cautious leap. You know, why not assume the very worst? Plus, remember, Claude was very vocal last week about talking often how he felt the the creature in his mind. You know, not only feeling that he was being watched constantly the last few weeks, but that he also felt him in his head. I hear that and I'm Holly with everything else I've I've put together about El Cuco seems sensible enough to me
2: yeah in that moment she was just image just came to me you guys remember that uh jiff i'm gonna go with jiff of uh president
1: (laughs) on your jiff jiff is a delicious peanut butter boo
2: (laughs) president obama when he announces the death of bin laden and there's like the image of him walking off stage but kicking the door open on on his way out because he's feeling so badass about his proclamation that that he just killed bin laden this was her moment she told them all this is going to happen everyone's going to be looking to her i think she had this strategy and she knew it just because of all of her research uh, and an intuition probably 50 50 on that she stepped in and capitalized wisely did you
0: guys feel like Howie saying this is all freaking insane was a good representation of at least a portion of the audience who's like what the fuck And then to have Ralph actually answer that and be like, my advice is that when we're out here, you need to just believe.
1: I love that it was Ralph that smacked him down because Howie, since the meeting, like Glory. I mean, Howie and Glory have been their own little island over here of this is utter bullshit. I mean, Ralph thought it was utter bullshit too, but he was dealing with more of the facts and, and always knew that there was a little bit to it. And Howie's still kind of like that, even in the face of, you just saw this picture of this like wild-eyed Claude while you knew we were holding Claude. Like, how could you even still doubt a little bit? Right. It was appropriate that it was Ralph that told him.
2: It was good. It had to come from Ralph. And it was kind of our, our last indicator that he's finally on board enough. Last week, it seemed like he was he was pretty much there. And this week, he's like, like he told Howie, as long as I'm here, I'm... I'm all in believing. That was good enough for me.
0: I also thought it was a good moment of actually speaking directly to the audience. Some of you guys might be on board with this idea and what's happening right now. Some of you might not be. But if you're watching and you're going to like go on this little adventure with us, just believe it. Just freaking my advice to you, audience member, just go with this. Go with it. Lean in. And I like it when they do that, when they like... Kind of give you that like stare in the camera, like go with it, people.
1: One, look up the fact that this was Stephen King's The Outsider, not a police procedural. Two, you know, it's a logical case, it's a fantastical case, almost mythological, but Her arguments make sense. If you can get past the supernatural aspect of it, call it, say, dog instead of El Cuco or vicious wild predator creature, uh, Cougar, another way of the show saying, listen, we got Ralph on board. We're going to get Howie on board. Now we just have to also deal with Seal. And I think a lot of Holly's nonverbal cues in this episode were really to put Seal in his place because he's not on board with keeping Claude out of the loop. Clearly not. Really which, know. which I mean comes to a kind of a disastrous end in the end.
0: Well, so, in having said that, do you guys think that if you were unsure about whether this idea of what Holly was saying. Would you want to leave your loved one in the dark, potentially unprepared to defend themselves if something was really coming at them? Would you guys be okay with that? Would you guys be like, no, I'd rather leave XYZ and I don't want to tell them what's going to happen. Even I know I understand the whole idea of like, yes, but we need to believe Holly. I agree with you. But doesn't it feel bad to leave someone you love like a sitting duck?
2: I've never been encountered with a completely unbelievable explanation for something going on. So I don't know how I would act in that that scenario, But I do know how I act when I am surrounded by people who I immediately recognize are either smarter than me or are at least much better educated about whatever it is we're talking about. And I am always willing to hear them out. And often take their advice, because in many of those cases, I've hired them to be around me. So, I, I mean, why why wouldn't I take their advice? I'm trusting them. I know that the relationship there is kind of different, and, and so Seal doesn't have that same motivator, but he's definitely not the smartest guy in the room, that's for sure. To Paul's point, I think he's trying to test him a little bit, talking
1: about, do you have any idea how to kill him? And let's assume Ralph's idea that the thing is killable, and Seal kind of goes around the room, accus- accusingly, you have no idea what you guys are doing you don't know anything about this. All you know is that this thing exists. That's as far as you actually know. You know, from Seal's point of view, who thinks kind of highly of himself, these, you know, high and mighty law, offer, law enforcement officers don't know any more than he does because they don't know the end game. That being said, literally, you know, several cars worth of. Calvary came down to protect my brother and part of that protection is we're going to put our lives on the line for him physically guard him but the trade-off is we can't tell him the intimate details of our plan because the bad guy can access that I think you have to go with that
2: exactly
1: it's not like we're we're not going to tell Claude anything and we're going to leave him out here to his own devices we're going to like use this bait they want to keep him protected everything they've done the last two episodes has been to keep him Physically guarded and safe and protected.
2: Well, and the punchline on that is that Claude wanted that,
0: right? He recognized it. He didn't like verbalize it, it soon enough, maybe.
2: But yeah, he was like, you know, what have you done? You, you fucked everything up.
0: What did you guys think about the idea of having Howie take him far, far away to go get some chicken? Well,
2: th- this is a book point that was
1: again, it was kind of dead on. Well, not the scene between them uh, that they have, they share, which I thought was actually a really nice. Howie yeah, scene that was nice. But the idea that they take Claude and they remove him so that the rest of the brain trust can talk about the plan. So I'd like that. I like that they kept that detail. And I like that Claude, again, not, you know, n- none of the Bolton boys are the smartest in the room, but Claude queued in right away. He was being taken out of the picture so that they could talk about him. He's okay with that. He's made that decision. He doesn't understand what's happening, but he understands enough to know that he can't be trusted in his own mind. That's something that Seal just disregards completely.
0: Okay, so is this Scooby-Doo version of Let's All Split Up okay with everyone that we're going to have Andy and Holly go check out where potentially a cemetery is that may lead to the Bolton family. Howie and Claude head out, and then we have Yoon and Ralph go do the witnesses. Is this all okay by you guys? Should more people have Stuck with Claude as being the primary concern.
1: This this sat better for me this week than it did last week when the thing hadn't happened yet with El Cuco. Started the episode with them working the cops, the local yokels, as it were. You know, as it were. And putting him with Howie, trusting Howie wasn't going to say anything of the plan, that seemed okay to me. Because if we're going off the thought that El Cuco can only read Claude's thought at this point, he's going to be far, far away. Better to have him go off to the chicken stand, an unpredictable thing, versus have him sit at the house.
2: They probably figured that they had some kind of window, although why they weren't figuring Jack into the equation... Doesn't make much sense. But, I mean, what they have going right now is that is that they think he's weak. They think he, he needs to feed. They think that he pretty much attacks children. So they're all grown people. This is during the day. They're going in pairs. Some of them are armed. They're they're probably going to be okay. And they got to find this stuff out. Or at least they think they do. A
1: lot of ground to cover and not a lot of time to do it. Why aren't they talking about Jack Moore? They know Jack is in league with this thing somehow. I don't think they understand how. He never comes up in their calculus.
2: No.
0: I have no idea. And the the main person who I really look at with that is Holly. She's the one who 100% just had an entire episode of being kidnapped by him knowing that he is 100% involved with this. I don't understand why she's not trying to account for him.
1: She feels very much that he is a victim in all of this. That's how she's always talked about him. But why
0: not just say that? Why not just say, you guys, we know that Jack is likely to be in proxy. Of this El Cuco thing, here's how I feel about it. He's being controlled by El Cuco. There is a potential that we could mediate the situation by talking to him and telling him, "If we kill him, you'll be free. You don't need to hurt anybody." You know, like why not talk it out? Why you like you said, just ignore the elephant in the room? That Jack has got to be a part of this. And we had Ralph telling this entire sharp. Shooter story on the way up. Now she's got all this information in her mind. She's the one who has it all, really. Everyone else has bits and pieces, but she's got all the nuggets together. Why she wouldn't warn them, express concern that he's around and a potential threat is confusing. Even
1: where they were walking into that de- very deserted, creepy as fuck parking lot. Okay, you're assuming, maybe rightly so even, that El Cuco is weak and so it's daylight. That is covered with ambush spots. I mean, I I did not serve in the military. I have read a lot of spy novels. I have read a lot of military novels. I've played a lot of Call of Duty in my time. I understand that that is a horrible place to just kind of la-di-da walk into. They look like they were getting ready for a picnic.
0: They were being way too casual. You just did drive into uh, the woods in what you think is the vicinity of where he is. Why not look a little more alive and a little less looking around just kind of casually? Like Before we get too deep into that though, we do need to talk about where Ralph and Yoon were and where Andy and Holly were. Did you guys think that the Andy and Holly thing, was that necessary for us to go on this little jaunt to the other cemetery? Or did we just need that sentimental moment between them?
2: That's all I got at this moment. Like nothing stands out as having been revealed in that trip andy's charm and their connection was really all i got out of that
1: all of the stuff with them tonight was just really reinforcing that andy is not long for this world that he should have been dressed in a red polo tonight the cemetery aspect was necessary they had a lot of time to fill and not a lot happened in this episode but them going to the cemetery and wasting their time set them up for the bear cave story later on to explain why El Kuka wouldn't be chilling at the cemetery looking for Boltons, that he's much more likely in this other place.
0: Another moment where I really felt that Dorothy and her protectors vibe was when Seal makes that snark comment in the kitchen about like the dishes aren't going to clean themselves. Holly goes to stand up and Andy is so quick to put his hand on Holly's shoulder there and be like, "Da da I got it. And all the other men hop to as well. That was a very Wizard of Oz Dorothy moment. Like, like, we got you. We got you girl. Like, we will protect you.
2: Caroline had to point that out to me. I didn't notice.
1: Does that make Seal, like, is he the wicked witch then And that? Is he like the big bad wolf?
0: I don't know that it all plays out exactly like that. As much as they view holly as something to be protected as someone special as someone important to them as a group and as and as much as like andy is maybe the first one to actually step forward very scarecrow like y'all because they're the two that are the closest it's so subtle like you said paul like you didn't even notice that andy like stopped her from getting up and was like "Mm -mm, seal's not going to direct you to start cleaning the house like that's so (laughs) not where this story should go
1: I I didn't take it that he was talking just to Holly. I think he was talking to just all of them because he dislikes all of them on their face as police. But I think Holly is the most responsible adult there. So she's the one who's going to be like, you know what? Fine. Fuck you. You know, I did use a mug. I will clean the mug. It struck me as like she would be the only one at that table to respond to his, his assholic attitude being a good guest. But I did like that he stopped it. I find Andy, if his sole role in this show is just to be the doting love interest and to be like, you go girl, when are you going to come out with a great Holly thing? Like he like he says essentially that. Like I find it kind of paternalistic and unnecessary. Holly's a badass. She doesn't need Andy to stick up for her. She handles Steel better than anyone else in that house. She blew up his shit with the elephant. She gave him great looks in this episode. She doesn't need his bullshit protection so if that's all andy's here to serve i would have been happy with them to not include andy as a character in the show because i really don't think he's added anything i don't think their love life is so spicy is so this this romeo and juliet faded star crossed lovers thing if he gets his head blown off next week i'm not gonna feel bad at all i, I i'm sure they could have done something interesting with the character but being some paternalistic like bullshit Holly doesn't need that.
0: Is this misguided in terms of the writers actually analyzing what they're doing here? Were they trying to use Andy as sort of the crystal to her, Anna? Like, I'm going to go with your plan, baby. You just tell me where to be and what you need me to do. Is this a misguided version of girl power and empowering her? And it's sort of turning out to be more like she doesn't need you to hold her up. She's been running her life all by herself. Is that what you're seeing? Is that what you're saying here?
1: The writers probably felt that Holly needed a romantic interest, someone that gets her. <laughs> Not just thinks that she's some batshit crazy, these El Cuco theories. But she has that with Yoon. She has Yoon's professional respect. She forgot she's forgot she got Alex's professional respect. I don't know what Yoon's wife is like. I don't know what Alex's romantic life is like. And I don't need to. They're professionals. They're doing a professional job. That's what I care about. Why does Holly? Holly's been nothing but a badass, efficient, like, professional machine this whole season. She doesn't need a love interest to be like, oh, whatever you need. I got you. I am team, you know, like he's wearing like a hashtag team Holly shirt. She doesn't need that. She has earned all of their respect. She has turned Ralph around without Andy. So what was his point at the end of the day? Because the woman needs a man to prop her up and say, you go, girl? No, no, I don't think so.
0: Very interesting, because we do have another relationship in here with Jeannie and Ralph. And we see how Ralph treats her, even just for like the millisecond on the phone. I mean, he basically dismisses her when she says, you know, I'm concerned about this. He's like, gotta go. Like, interesting. I agree with you that no one else... Delves deep into relationships. Like, was that really a necessary thing to have a part of Holly? Did she need to have this? Uh, But I asked that question several episodes ago when we were even trying to decide if it made any fucking sense for her to have him come up to the hotel room that night. And I was like, that just doesn't seem like that's in her character. She would have gone down and had a drink with him, but. I just don't you're you guys are right like this this concept of like why did we have to add this romance? It always seemed weird to me.
2: Woman's got needs. We've all got needs,
1: even at the end of the episode when they' are about to pull into the creepiest fuck parking lot, playing that game with her like the the pick the movie and stuff she's answering because she's because holly answers those questions she doesn't seem like she's having fun though all that scene came off is like he's trying to make himself feel better or he thinks he's being charming she's thinking about the goddamn mission and the monster in a hole i didn't get the impression that she was enjoying that game at all
0: when she said she never even saw the movie and he goes that's my girl he's like
1: this like like 1950s Mr. Cleaver giving June a little swat on the ass because she made a great pot roast that's my girl like that's his entire vibe fuck that guy go back to your mall security Jesus I wish he was never in the show I am Ooh, super geez.
0: intrigued by this Bro, the whole time I was like something's up about Andy something gives me a weird vibe I, like I definitely felt like I was alone in that he's like a Stepford wife
1: I, I love Holly I am here for holly i have no purpose but to be Holly's support she doesn't need it dude like back in the beginning of the season like i thought maybe something interesting i thought he was going to be an interesting character that was my mistake I, I mean i think i was right that he didn't turn out to be a bad guy and i don't think he's going i don't think we're gonna get some twist 11th hour twist next week that he's a bad guy it just turns out he's a useless guy
2: he's he's season eight john snow
1: <laughs> are you my queen am i your only queen
2: the writers of Game of Thrones, for instance, were kind of crucified for many things, but one of the one of the things was Daenerys and Tyrion forgetting that the Iron Fleet was still out there, and that's when she lost Ragel. Isn't Jack sort of the Iron Fleet <laughs> in, in this situation?
1: Yeah, with a with an excellent scope and a boozy sniper habit. Same kind of thing definitely want to talk about the other car ride which i found a lot more interesting what did you think of ralph having some kind of last minute jitters and then alec is just like dude calm the fuck down you just take little bites that's how you keep your shit together and get on with life
0: well let's talk about the scene previous to that and that what might have shaken his confidence he and Yoon have the moment with the witnesses with mike and sam and essentially get nothing out of it there's no scratch there's there's not a lot to go on he the things that they expected to see in order to be able to bolster the the feeling of like we got this we understand the the series of events without the scratch and without really sort of understanding i know that we have the weird eyes comment and so maybe that should have felt a little better but i think that it was the not really coming away with much from the witnesses that shook ralph a little bit
1: we saw that play out but i guess from ralph's point of view he had only kind of heard like the second hand of it, So maybe you're right. Maybe that he wouldn't have been able to appreciate the surprise of the moment that El Cuco didn't get to do his thing because he was really taken off by a guard and really literally driven off before a mob descended upon him. So maybe that shook him. I, I got it more just he had talked to Genie. He, he's got all these things in his mind. He's wrestling. He's not comfortable with this. He's still trying to fake it until he makes it. I can't believe this is happening because if this turns out to be true, my whole world just is shattered. He's like a like a regular person before they step into the TARDIS for the first time <laughs> and become Doctor Who's companion. Like his mind can't even understand what the fuck is about to happen to him. But he has Yoon and Alec to slap him, essentially, verbally slap him and tell him to keep it together.
2: Finally a crack, like not just like a I don't mean like a crack like in the armor, I mean like a crack in his belief system. It was finally he was letting it all all in and that's why Alec had to say the same thing you would tell a kid that's eating too fast gotta gotta take it in small bites here buddy
1: oh uh just uh, just to backtrack one more time did you guys think there was any significance to when andy and holly were at the the cave park and she scoops up the goo evidence from like the map if you remember the episode where Foxhead comes and stands over sam when he's looking at the map trying to figure out where the Sabertooth Tiger Cave is.
2: Hmm.
0: All I could think about is that, like, it 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 would reconfirm to her that it seems like he's super gooey when he is not fully formed. So maybe that would just like encourage her again that he he hadn't transformed completely because it seemed like whenever this was an issue, because Terry touched other things as Goo Terry, but really it was like when the clothes came off in the barn, like when he was like transitioning back out a little bit. Or when he was sitting in the chair at Jeannie and Ralph's house, then he had like a gooey consistency. But it's almost like he hardens up into the person. Okay, he, he wasn't fully formed as Claude.
1: I like that explanation that it showed her not in peak killing form if he's still leaking goo.
0: Did you guys get anything out of the witness portion at all?
1: No. Other than the eye set thing, but I think it just goes towards the he's not fully Claude.
0: I super liked Grandpa Mike's line when he said that he still looked like he had a mask on, even with no mask. I like that very much. If you put the outsider, dash, he still looked like he had a mask on, even with no mask, as like the line, that would intrigue me to see the movie.
1: I like that they confirmed that he was the grandpa. I like when you get those kinds of answers. We got to talk about the flashback sequence, the tale of Bolton Woe, as told by Seal. What was your guys' whole take on the sad story of the Weaver Boys and the way it kind of intertwined the first half of the episode, which I think was definitely some misdirection to make it seem like it was
2: happening now? I figured it was a flashback right away based on the clothing and the filter that they had applied to those those shots it seemed a little, little more yellowy uh, eventually we saw the cars there's no way a collection of 1940s cars <laughs> would would be all at the same place at the same time like that or the rotary
1: phone on the electric pole
2: there's that. I thought that was that.
1: Uh, Pennsylvania Station, 65,000. You know, one of those kinds of phones.
0: Funny how the things we noticed, uh, Paul noticed the cars. I totally was like, no boy anywhere in the last decade wore brown pants like that. <laughs> so it was like a fashion versus car thing real quick. But I really care more about the idea of whether this was a good way to explain that story. And did they, did they need to do this in this episode? Did they need to create the misdirection of when is this story happening? Uh oh, are we seeing another two boys go missing? Uh oh, they're walking right directly into El Cucos' cave where we think he presently is. Did we need that added tension or could we have moved forward without being shown seriously? Like half the episode was the Weaver family.
2: The way that it wove into Claude's story made it. A little more than just random. I think it was to show that, I guess, the Boltons... Well, the, that the story didn't tie into El Cuco at all. Well, it does well, yes, kind it, of. It, yes, it, it does. did.
0: We're both like, oh my god, yes, it did. It
1: does because <laughs> because the, if the idea is El Cuco hides out where the grief is for the person he's going to take. Like he was hanging out near where the Maitland Cemetery was. He was hanging out in the abandoned place near where the Hofstetter family cemetery was. That's why Holly wants to go to the cemetery because she thinks that that's going to round where El Cuca would be. That's why she wants to know where the Boltons are buried. So the story is very important. I mean, by the end of the story, if you haven't caught on, when he mentions all the family that have died, he says, The most Boltons are buried in their final resting place at that cave. So that explains why he's at the cave site. But I agree with you that you didn't need it to be so long and drawn out, intertwined with the story other than one. I think the show wanted you to know. He's in the bear cave. We knew the bear cave was a thing. The boys were lost in the bear cave, and we know he's hungry. If you're not picking up on the fashion, and I don't know what this fashion in Cecil, Tennessee is like, maybe they still wear 1940s clothes.
0: But he, no, they don't make those brown pants. You couldn't find those brown pants, I'm telling you. I think it
1: was definitely for people maybe that weren't on the, you know, looking to be suspicious to definitely think that these boys were current time el Cucko food i originally thought maybe it was a flashback because one of the boys names was john so i thought initially we were getting a flashback of jack in his youth i thought the show was going to show us some interaction with el cuco as a as a kid that kind of maybe explained why he was chosen now because that's been an ongoing discussion i mean we have an idea because he's kind of a broken guy but i thought when the guy's name when the kid's name was john and john is jack obviously hoskins you know, even the APB calls him, which they have in the previously on here. They like say, you know, there's an APB ad on John Jack Hoskins. I thought we were getting set up for a uh, Jack flashback.
0: I was picking up on the older boy thinking that he looked Ralph-like.
1: He did look like Ralph.
0: His hair really looked Ralph-like to me. And so I thought we were seeing some sort of like Ralph had a run-in with some sort of specter because he's the one that is the least believing in, in all this stuff that maybe he had something happen at some point. To me, we spent too much time following the two boys, wandering through the cave with them. I understand we got it in about one second. The cave is confusing. It's easy to get lost. There you go. It was weird and unrealistic to have a dad looking for them. Who completely stops calling their names like five minutes into the search? Yeah. He, he like stops saying anything. And I was like, when he was like coming down, he was completely silent in the cave. Now I understand after the fact. Are we gathering that the reason why the cave actually crumbled in was because all the men were yelling? Yes. Okay, so maybe was he being cautious about not being allowed?
1: I thought it was actually a really shitty rescue attempt. You know, you go find Little Squiggy. Every town's got a fucking Little Squiggy, especially back in the 1940s. God, there was no food then. You find a little scrawny guy in the town who everyone uses to like fix the little tiny repairs in their cars where you can't reach your hand. You put a rope around him and you go spelunk him through the tunnels. Like Billy Madison taught us, you get out there and you find your fucking dog. You just don't give up on your goddamn kids. Jesus. But uh no, it, it's pulled actually from the book. The, the screaming and the yelling causes the cave in and they carried that over here, which I liked also. I like that they kept that. This is why El Cuco is set up in a cave because it's the source of the Bolton grief, family grief.
0: And it also gives you that that layer like we have with Jack of the tragedy, the youthfulness of those men and how, you know, it was a grandfather and all his brothers, like it's like an entire generation of a family was lost. That's a major tragedy to explain why the Boltons might be someone to focus in on.
1: It doesn't seem like the Boltons had the best childhood with their parents growing up. I was suspicious of how much Seal would really give a flying fuck. About descendants that he would have barely ever known. He would have never known his grandfather at all, other than just being able to wrap himself in family tragedy. I, I don't know how much grief Seal uh, feels about the amount of Bolton life lost at that cave. I don't like Seal, and I don't like Andy. I guess that's I guess that's my point <laughs> in this episode. Is I wouldn't that's mind funny. if the two of them were the two first two bullets that Jack uses. I just want to back up. There is a really cool scene. That we got, and it was really the only El Cuco Jack scene we had before the final scene in this episode. Seal reveals while Howie is in the kitchen, we're, we're with Howie. We follow him to the kitchen to get something, the leftover, uh, highway heaven chicken. We, so we hear Seal through the other room telling Claude, and then Claude saying, Do you know what you've done? Do you know what you've which is a great scene, and I like that they followed Howie into the kitchen, so we heard it through the door like he did. The scene in a cave, you see El Cuco's head lift up and turn. No word spoken. Go. You shift to Jack, and Jack just gets activated. Like Yeah,
2: that's the same word I thought.
1: No word spoken. It, it, El Cuco has total control. He's telepathy speaking with Jack now, because Jack gets up without a word and walks out of the cave and goes to do business. It's like the
2: Terminator turning on
1: yes like he is fully activated and no longer does el cuckoo have to verbalize what he wants jack to do at this point he just has to think it and i love the head turn el Cuco receiving like downloading the message from real claude's brain favorite scene probably in the entire series loved it loved it loved it loved it i watched it a couple times i thought it was a great scene i also like that claude grabs a bat did you guys notice that uh, his you know seal grabs all of his weapons and his ammo how he grabs his truck claude grabbed a bat That's what he climbed into the truck with. I thought that was pretty funny. Never runs out of ammo.
2: The old Lucille. Yeah, exactly.
0: I'll make you pause for a minute on that baseball bat. If you're El Cuco and you like little boys, you're Claude and you're sort of in this state where a gun would probably be a terrible idea to have in your hand. I think a bat is really fitting. There's some sense of like the, that like innocence level of like all these little boys and, and where Claude is sort of fits into a lot of this and Terry Maitland being the baseball yeah, it's coach. the theme and of baseball. Be, yeah, because it's like all American and it's, and, and it's a little league is like the, the whole idea of it. I like it. I think I think it was more there than just a, a moment, you know, it wasn't just an accident.
1: Well, you also have the famous untouchable scene with Robert De Niro talking about, you know, the importance of a team. And he's walking around with the bat in his hand around his gangsters when he plays Al Capone. And then he just starts beating the fuck out of the guy at the table with the bat. So, you know, the bat has an illustrious career in violence. <laughs> but I, I don't know. I thought it was kind of funny, but there probably is some symbolism, though, to it, too, on the deeper level that you're picking up on. As a bouncer in a club where you can't use knives or guns... A bat is probably a great bouncer's choice for a weapon. He probably feels very natural with exerting some roughneck justice with a bat.
2: Mm. Yeah, that works. Last week, we had mentioned the idea of everybody pairing off into vehicles heading to the OK Corral. This time we got a threesome in car one with Ralph, you yeah, and Alec. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Your mic was still on there, Mike. Um, Oh, damn it. Yeah, and then car two was Andy and Holly. The other car doesn't take off until much later following Seal's fuck up. And that one is Howie, Claude, and Seal. And every one of them has sort of their own little vibe. Like last week I mentioned uh, that Stephen King likes to have these moments prior to uh, everyone dying where everyone gets to... Make the reader in that case or the watcher remember why they liked those characters in the first place. And I think we got tastes of that in this car ride, but eventually we wind up at the caves. Did you guys see the ending coming for me? I thought, I thought the camera would go black about two and a half seconds before it did. I fully anticipated hearing gunshots. I just didn't think we'd get a taste. Of the carnage this week.
0: Or I was surprised by that in terms of it's unusual that you get, you either get all of it or none of it. It's very unusual to actually see someone get killed and then it goes black and then you keep hearing the gunshots. You know what I mean? Like it's either like you're going to see everyone get mowed down or run for cover or you're going, it's going to go black and you're just going to hear it all. Mm -hmm.
1: I thought we were actually going to get a second death. I didn't think we were just going to get one and then the black screen. I thought we were going to get two people because I think, I think ultimately it's going to be more than two people that, that go down. I'm sticking to my numbers from last week. This actually I liked a lot because it seemed like a straight up homage to the season one finale of the West Wing, which anyone who follows me on social media knows is one of my favorite shows. Season one of the West Wing ends with two snipers in a nest who we've been watching set up all episode long. The very last scene is they. Open fire on the president and his motorcade as they're as they're approaching their limos, and we see the beginning of mass hysteria. But the majority of the shots that ring out happen in what West Wing Weekly podcast calls a uh, flintel, which is like show noise happening after the screen has gone dark and the credits have started to like flash, mm-hmm. but you still hear like the show. So I loved it as it was unfolding. I was like, this is clearly a West Wing season 1 cuz it was it was almost verbatim the same idea of gunshots begin to ring out and then you flip to black and you continue to hear gunshots and like mass hysteria but here it's just gunshots. It was a total of 7 gunshots. Uh two before the screen goes black, the third gunshot as the screen goes black and then there's an additional four after the screen has gone black. Yes, I sat and counted. It wasn't what I expected, but it I, I really, really appreciated it. So we see Alec take it in the back of the head. R.A.P. Alec, pour one out for him. I thought it was interesting, though, for the f- next bullet and then when the screen goes black, we don't see where he's shooting. All we see is that Ra- we we're holding on Ralph's face that is now flecked with Alec blood. We're listening to it unfold a little bit as we're watching him in that like kind of slow-mo scene. It was really cinematically done very well. Jack is trying to do all headshots here. So I think that's pretty good evidence, maybe, that uh, when we come back next week and we're going to be in the middle of this firefight, Ralph is still standing because at least through the first second bullet, we didn't see him take one in the gut. But what what are your odds now? So last week, we all went around the table. We picked how many people we think are going to bite it in the end, and we guessed who would go down. So we have eight total people showing up to the site. Who do you think makes it out? Who do you think dies next week?
2: I think Holly and Ralph are a lock for making it. Obviously, Alec is right out. At least one of the Boltons. Probably seems like Claude is probably the one that will, that will get shot, and then El Cuko would be like, "You fucked up my everything. Now you shot my double and, and uh, punish him." Maybe. Uh, let's see. That leaves Howie and obviously Andy. He's he's a goner. Howie's on the bubble. Yeah, I think the season two potential for needing Howie's too great to see him go. Probably Claude. And I think Yoon follows the pattern from the source material and gets hurt badly.
0: Well, I had guessed Alec last week as my dead count. Andy goes on the dead count. I saw Howie as going out, but I agree on the second season requiring Howie. So I'll be more on the cusp on that one. I will say that Yoon makes sense to me to be um, injured in the cave. Like somehow, I don't know, maybe he gets a little further. So I'm going to hold on him. I'm going to probably go with Seal as the as he's going to tell them all to run and he's going to be the distractor. He's going to be the one where he says, like, I'll hold them off. You you guys go. He rushes Jack in some way. I could see that happening. I don't think Claude gets shot. That seems like I, I hear you about the twist of then El Cuckoo is somehow injured. Maybe that's the big twist. Um, I'm going to piggyback on your concept. What if the way to kill El Cuco is for someone to realize, probably Claude, that if Claude dies, some amount of injury happens to El Cuco. And maybe that's how they weaken him enough to actually be able to take him out. I know you two have read the book. Don't tell everybody here how he dies. No, I don't want to hear about it. I'm just throwing it out. I've not read the book. So I'm going to go with the idea that maybe someone realizes if not telling Claude. Was important. Maybe he's also an Achilles heel for Okuko in this mix.
1: The way they're setting up this final end game, it is different than the book. While there are definitely similarities, they've made a couple of key changes that potentially changes how it all shakes out. That being said, I don't think my decision actually is as affected by the book as it was last week. I had Alec or Yoon. I, I always thought one of the two of the, of the professional cops who believe had a go. So I think Yoon is safe. I think he has gotten an immunity idol. Uh, I also think, Andy, I'm going to take Howie off the list because I didn't see Seal coming to the site last week. With Seal and Howie and Claude showing up, I'm taking Howie off of the list and putting him in the save column. And I'm putting Seal in in the death column for the redemptive jump in front of my brother bullet to redeem his shitty character and convince us that it really all was for the good of his brother, that he even, in the end, sacrificed himself. That makes a lot of TV sense. It seems to be kind of consistent with SEAL's logic. So I see like a no, you know, slow-mo jumping in front of it, you know, and taking it in the chest instead of Claude kind of thing. One thing we did not mention and how it's going to affect the game and the fact that we heard seven bullets and there was only five people at the site. So either Jack is put down all five people And it was just being excessive with two extra bullets. But we did not mention, and I think we need to, you have the checkoff snake that we saw hissing right around where Jack's feet would be splayed out in his sniper pose. The snake is going to come back into play next week. I don't think they would have lingered on it as long as they did if it doesn't. Something has gone wrong that he fired seven bullets for five people. Someone was doing some good hiding for him to waste so many bullets on five people.
0: I like the snake thing. I definitely felt like when he was slithering around and we could see Jack setting up and we could see that Jack had been drinking, like perhaps he would be a little remiss.
1: You have to fight Jack is like the mini boss fight before you get to the big bo- final boss fight in like video game logic. You just don't walk in and fight the final boss. You have to fight like the gatekeeper. So I think next week opens up with the firefight with Jack and then it proceeds to who's ever left standing proceeds into the cave to take on el cuco i
2: was saying that'd be some pretty innovative game design if you walked into nintendo and you were like i've got it guys boss right up front the main guy
1: <laughs> we're still gonna charge 60 bucks but the game is only 10 minutes of gameplay. king play.
2: koopa it's awesome right away <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Predictions for next week. Yeah, it's going to be uh, bloody. We're going to lose a lot of friends. and But eventually, we are going to chase El Cuco into the caves. And we're going to figure some shit out. I think El Cuco is going to be able to communicate with them in whatever state he is in. He's going to be... Um, willing to say whatever he's going to say because he's thinks he's got the upper hand because he's you know a supernatural being that's lived for however long he's lived so he's never not had the <laughs> upper hand when it comes to humans i think we're going to get some additional answers but plenty and plenty of gunfire well
0: thanks you guys so much for listening we hope that you've enjoyed our coverage and that you guys will come back and like check out the finale with us we are very excited and i think there will be a season two and i i will definitely watch so i hope you guys will too thank you guys so much This is Caroline.
2: This is Paul from Daily Review.
1: And this is Mike from Pop Culture Review. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you. Uh, clubhouse.